Well, this morning we continue our series in Hosea. Uh, last week, uh, you'll remember, we left our service uh, with a lot of questions, questions looking for an answer. And in this section of Hosea, we see God's response. So let us draw together as we think about the words as we have just been read this morning. He had blue blood. She On the other hand, was the daughter of an air hostess. They met at university, and little did they know that art history would result in them writing history for themselves. We followed every twist in the relationship, on, then off, on, then off. Then came the moment the nation was waiting for, the engagement, the step of saying, I'm yours And I want to spend my life with you. What followed included a £25,000 wedding dress, £15,000 on bridesmaids' dresses, £830,000 on jewellery and rings, £31,000 on suits for grooms and best men and ushers, a priceless engagement ring, £220,000 on flowers, 30 grand on a wedding breakfast, 5,000 on a cake, that wouldn't get (laughs) 5,000, 4,000 on invitations, 100 grand on cars, 10,000 on photography, and on the list goes. In fact, to a total of 52,659,000 500 pounds. A betrothal in a wedding that cost a heck of a lot. Though what else would you expect from the wedding of a future king? Yes, that is right. This was the cost of that day off you and I got in May. The wedding of William and Catherine. But this morning we focus on another kind of betrothal. One, though, which also cost a lot, even more than a lot, and the like of which has never been seen since. A glorious betrothal, the betrothal of God and his people. So let's jump right back in then to Hosea's story and learn some more. The power of love, the way you look tonight, when I fall in love Can you feel the love tonight? Everyone has a favorite love song. A song that maybe defines your relationship with your partner. A first dance, perhaps. Perhaps it was even playing as you had your first kiss. Yet in Hosea 2, we find one of the most tenderest and most beautiful love songs in the Bible. It's sung by God to his people an unfaithful wife, Israel. A love song between God and his people. Not some cheese-saturated lyric with a melody in the background, but from, a, from the heart, declaration of love that will always win. In verse 14, we read, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Or as Peterson writes, And now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date, and I'll court her. 
the movie house on the Dublin Road. That's where I had my first date. You know that primary school sweetheart. Age 11 and a big night out with the bright lights of the big city. I was the bee's knees. Best clothes, drop of aftershave, though it would probably be about four years before I'd actually have to shave. But aftershave nonetheless. 20 quid from my mum. Enough for a film and whatever my girl wanted from the confectionery stand. <laughs> Funny how some memories stay with us. Though, as we've been reading this morning, there is a right kind of infatuation. Apparently, um, Desi probably knows this more than me, but the scholars say that the Hebrew term used here for to allure her means, sorry, that there is a right infatuation. So we'll trust them and run with them. True love need be no more ravishing than false, only less disappointing. The Lord here will exert his charms and speak to the heart of his beloved. No messing around for God like in human relationships. No mind games. No, the Lord here will speak right to the heart. He isn't interested in the things on a surface level. Rather, he cuts right to the heart. Notice in verse 14 the use of the word wilderness. There's nothing like the wilderness of the desert. Parched ground, sharp rocks, sinking sand, and thorns that cut. A miraging oasis. Wavy horizons ever beyond reach. The wilderness of the desert. Have you been there? Maybe you've experienced wilderness of the soul. Parched promises and sharp words. Shifting commitments. Burning anger. Rejections that cut. The wilderness, as Henry Nyan says, is a place without scaffolding. A place where all our illusions of self-sufficiency get completely dashed. This was something the children of Israel knew well. The Jews, of course, were not allowed to forget the wilderness because it was there that their relationship with God was first forged. It was in the impossible environment of the Sinai Peninsula that God revealed himself to them and invited them into covenant with him. This is why throughout scriptures the wilderness is remembered by the faithful as the defining moment when sorry, the defining moment in their relationship with God. The wilderness was a school in which two lessons were taught. One, about the kind of God who is there, and the second, about the type of people we are. Sad but true this morning, we are all guilty of harlotry. We have loved other lovers more than God. We have gotten our kicks elsewhere. He has been at times an annoying deity in the road. We, like Gomer, were enslaved to the world, pleasure and ambition. But God has not cast us off. He promises to take us into the wilderness. He wants to be alone with us. Why? So that he can speak tenderly to us. Literally, It means to speak to the heart. 
And when he speaks, he will allure you. He'll entice and woo you. He will say what a lover says to his lady when they walk away from the party into the garden. God wants to talk that way with you. Go with him this morning into the wilderness and listen with your heart. The Lord does recall past failures to the people of Israel and offers hope. In verse 15 we read, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. This valley was the valley in which the people of Israel had first been unfaithful to God in the promised land. Just after the land of Achan kept the forbidden booty and caused the defeat at Ai. But God promises that if this, his harlot, will come home, Achor no longer will be a valley of trouble, but a door of hope. She will come home rich come home to rich vineyards. The Lord here is offering hope to his people, hope and safety. Not just a remedy to hardship and pain, but a lasting hope to see them through, to see us through in the midst of all uncertainty. But what is God's intention? In verse 16, we read, in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. The word Baal here apparently suggests some kind of double meaning. It, um, there's, a, there's a kind of play on words going on here and the verse that follows kind of supports it. It's kind of God saying, um, you're guilty of idolatry. The Lord is saying you'll no longer worship TV, music, clothes, car, but me. But me with your heart and you will be truly mine alone. But what do we make of verses 19 and 20? And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Three times I will betroth you, I will betroth you, I will betroth you. But what's kind of meant by this term betrothal? I have to be honest, up until I started writing this, it was kind of a word that I had a vague understanding of, but that was just a very vague Well, first off, it's more than a kind of Beyonce. If you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. Rather, (laughs) I don't want to get into trouble for that. Rather, it notes an eagerness and warmth and what is promised. It makes a new beginning. A beginning marked with all the freshness of first love rather than a patching up of the differences. This new covenant will bring new life. In the ancient world, the idea of betrothal was even more decisive than the idea of engagement in our society. It involved the handing over of the bride price to the girl's father, whose acceptance finalized the marriage. Often marriages were arranged by the family of a man and woman, and after the betrothal took place, the couple was considered husband and wife, but they still remained apart. Then, 
At an unknown time, the groom would return to claim his bride. At that time, there would be the wedding feast and a formal uniting of the couple. They would live together and begin their life as a family. During the betrothal period, both the groom and the bride were supposed to remain faithful to their betrothed. As you can imagine, the time then leading up to the wedding was filled with anticipation, excitement as the couple prepared for their union. In the few lines that we read in verses 19 and 20, we have a picture of nature at peace with man, of weapons discarded and of God's people at one with him. Once again, we're back to this idea of grace. This passage makes three things clear. Firstly, the permanence of the union. I will betroth you to me forever. Forever. This isn't some passing phase or a, I'm sticking with you until something better comes along. No, this is the real thing. To borrow words from Steve at the beginning of the series, this is the treacle running down your back. God's love for his people is the full hog. Secondly, notice the intimacy of it. And you shall know the Lord. To see what this means, recall, if you will, the peculiar word to know from the Bible. In Genesis 4 and 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And in Matthew 1 and 25, Joseph knew her, Mary, not until she had borne a son. In the context of a broken marriage being renewed with fresh vows of betrothal, must not the words, and you shall know the Lord. The fact is that the relationship owes everything to God. It seems that in our day you're barely invited to a wedding and then you're presented with a list of wedding presents for the bride and groom that they would like to receive. Things to make their new house a home. Yet, as we read these verses this morning, we will see that this betrothal comes with its own gifts and promises. Not a toaster or a kettle or even a canteen of cutlery, but gifts and promises that will have a profound impact. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Far warmer and more positive than we may have thought or even dared hope for. Far from a God who wants to keep his hands clean, true righteousness is active and generous. God's righteousness is creative, stepping out to put the very worst things right. He gives us acceptance and acquittal. And what is our response? Do we grasp it with open hands or do we just respond with a, okay, all right, that'll do. Secondly, I will betroth you to me in justice. Justice is a word we have heard a lot about over the past couple of months since Waltersdorf spoke so elegantly on his interpretation of what justice is or is not. But what we do know is this, that it must have its roots in God and its fruits displayed in us. Say what you will 
about the human legal system. And sometimes when we watch our TV screens and news, we're often left crying, that's not fair, that's not justice. But we know that God's justice is perfect justice. I will betroth you to me in steadfast love, devotion, true love, mercy, loving kindness, love and loyalty, the very thing that should exist in partners in marriage, yet the very thing that Hosea in the passage has been denied by Gomer. She sleeps around, yet he keeps her in steadfast love. God's people sleep around metaphorically, and yet he keeps them in his steadfast love. The power of this would truly this morning blow your mind. When are we going to give the same back to God? When are we going to say, no more one night stands? I will betroth you to me in mercy. Now we're back to the name that God had chosen for Hosea's children, Lo Ruhamah. Not pitied, which is formed apparently from the same Hebrew root as mercy. True to his word and nature, God could not wait to cancel that appalling name. And he did it as far back as chapter 2 and verse 1 as we were hearing last week. But now, now when he is talking to Israel as his betrothed, he makes the point doubly sure. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Other faults may put a marriage under strain, but this one is divisive. God, of course, had been faithful all along. Yet his people, yet his people, well, let's just say faithfulness wasn't their badge. They couldn't wear it. They had mumbled and grumbled. They had turned their backs and ran a marathon in the opposite direction at times. So God's gift of faithfulness here is not just something he's going to give, but something he's going to nurture and grow in his people. Back to that Beyonce song. How many of us are behaving like single ladies, as Beyonce would say, looking for a cheap thrill at the end of the day? Can you hear the line resonate? All the single ladies. Saying that stuff we do when we think that no one will hear. All the single ladies. That drink that takes us from sober to drunk. All the single ladies. But why don't we put our hands up and show that we are engaged to God? You see, because as we come to the end of the passage, it moves from God speaking to the people of Israel and throws us right back into the New Testament. It's a story of the church and Christ. We this morning are Christ's bride. Christ has fallen head over heels in love. Sometimes when I see how I behave, I can't imagine why God would want me as his bride. And I'm sure that you can agree when you look around your own life too. The church is far from perfect. Sometimes we're cranky and cantankerous, where rarely, if ever, we live up to our God-given potential. There are times when our faithfulness wears pretty thin and our eyes wander. Sometimes our hearts get sidetracked and we let material possessions and power and prestige become more important in our lives than the bridegroom who loves us more 
than life itself. What are we going to do this morning? Are we going to continue on this rebellious road? Or are we going to draw ourselves into a deeper relationship with God? He was the son of God. She was a rebellious world. They met at the beginning of time. The relationship has been on then off, on then off ever since. The cost of the betrothal this morning was everything. The cost, the bridegroom laying down his life. Amen.